Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the executive director of AABP. And today we're going to talk about a topic that I am uh, very passionate about and our guest is also very passionate about, and that is uh, uh, lameness in dairy cattle. So today we have Dr. Gerard Kramer. Uh, Gerard, go ahead and, and tell us about yourself and introduce yourself. Uh, well, thank you, Fred. Uh, so yeah, I'm Dr. Gerard Kramer. Um, I'm originally actually from Holland, um, went to vet school in Canada at University of Guelph, Ontario Veterinary College. Um, graduated in 2002, worked in private practice part-time while trying to run a dairy farm. Um, I did that for a year, and then I decided to go back and do graduate work while continuing to run the dairy farm. The graduate work was my off-farm income for a couple of years, and then I did my DVSC, Doctor of Veterinary Science, on lameness-related stuff. And after that, I decided that I was going to try to make a career out of working on lameness. So I opened up a veterinary practice um, specifically dealing with lameness, focusing on trimming, um, but also doing research and consulting and training of farmers and hoof trimmers. And then I had an injury to one of my fingers, and then I, it was an opportunity to apply to a position at the University of Minnesota and I figured I had nothing to lose. So in 2013, they made me an offer that I found very hard to refuse. So since then, I've been at the University of Minnesota um, teaching veterinary students, um, but also doing research on lameness and extension on lameness related stuff. So my career goal is basically to be the person that people think about when they want to talk about lameness and to make a difference for both all stakeholders in the lameness industry. Well, and that's why we have you as a guest on our podcast because uh, uh, of your, you know, of your research, uh, uh, and you know, I found it to be very uh, practical as well. Uh, you know, your teaching and outreach. You've you've uh, been involved with seminars uh, with with uh, with Nigel Cook, of course. Uh, so we're gonna just dig right in here, Gerard. How big of an issue is lameness in the in the in the U.S. dairy industry? You know, we've heard that uh, 30% of dairy cattle experience lameness during their lactation. Is this true? Uh, that's a hard question to answer. So, yeah, I think lameness is a big issue in the industry. Um, if we do, if we go across and score herds on average, we're going to find 20 to 30% of the cows that um, us experts will classify as lame. Um, if we ask the farmer, um, or the owners of the dairy or the people working with the cows, they're likely going to say around 5 to 10% that they would classify as lame. So there's a bit of a disconnect between what we call lame or what experts call lame and the actual owners and people that take care of the animals call lame. But yeah, it's probably one of the bigger issues within our industry. And it's also a huge animal welfare concern, which is kind of what drives me to work on it. Absolutely. And do you think, and of course, this is, uh, you know, a little bit of conjecture here because, you know, I'm, I'm no longer in private practice, but of course I, I dealt with that same thing with my dairy farms. I'd ask them, you know, how many, how many cows do you think in your herd are lame? And, and, you know, I would kind of, it would be way lower than what I thought. Do you think that's due to lack of farmers ability to score their cows? Do you think it's, uh, um, they normalize, you know, maybe a, a score one lame cow. What, where do you think that disconnect is and how can veterinarians assist their producers in, in overcoming that? 
Uh, I think it's actually a little bit of everything, and which sounds like an academic answer. Um, but it's one of those things: the more you know, the more you don't know. Um, but I think so. Yes, there's. I think there's definitely a disconnect. So one of the things I like to do when I'm on farm is pick out a cow that I think is lame and ask a history about that cow. So can the farm tell me a little bit about it, right? Because when we come on a farm and look at a cow, we only see her as a snapshot. And the farm might say, okay, that cow has been walking like this for the last year. And they don't consider her lame because she's been walking like that um, all the time. And they've looked at her and they know there's really nothing wrong with her feet that they can address. So I think that's part of it. Um, so that's kind of relates to the chronic cow discussion, which we're probably going to get into at some point. Um, the other thing is that a lot of, the scoring systems have issues. So repeatability becomes an issue. Um, so that farmers probably also realize that. So they've identified cows at a lane that they can really address and deal with. So those become more of the three-legged lane cows. So when we ask, when we identify a cow that's a score two or a score three, if we're using a three-point score, the score two cows are very tricky um, if they're kind of like borderline. So that also becomes an issue. So I think, most of us, the farm and the veterinarians, we can all agree about the cow that needs immediate attention. It's the cow that needs, that we're not unsure about. And there's many things that we don't know about that cow. Like if we intervene with her, are we actually going to make a difference for her? We, we'd like to think we do, but the data to support that is actually not as good as we'd like it to be. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, veterinarians' role on farm has changed greatly, you know, over our careers, of course. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we're probably not getting called out uh, to, to, to treat individual lame cows as much anymore. Um, and a lot of farms, you know, you're, you're well aware they have, you know, um, uh, hoof trimmers either, you know, employed by the farm themselves or, or that visit farms. How can veterinarians monitor lameness on farms and, and how should we be calculating, you know, the, the, you know, the incidence rate of lameness on farms? And then should veterinarians be breaking that down by the, the cause of lameness? What should veterinarians do to provide that oversight to those farms? Uh, there's a that's a loaded question <laughs> and what I'm very <laughs> passionate about. Um, so I would argue veterinarians as practices changed. Veterinarians actually have a huge opportunity to take advantage and become more involved in lameness. Um, so I think, and to do that, they need to do exactly the things you asked, like how do we monitor, how do we get involved? Um, and I think working with the hoof trimmer, that's where it all starts, right? Because I'm a fan of using what we see when we're trimming cow's feet. So the lesion status of the animal as a measure um, for what we find. So, cause it's finding, cause locomotion scoring and using that as an outcome is difficult, but because most farms are on a routine trimming program where the trimmer comes, if veterinarians work with the trimmer to say, okay, do I know what you're calling an ulcer or what you're calling a white line and make sure we're not writing just down abscesses. So we get consistent recording and then we can try to put some numbers to it to say, okay, how do we calculate it? Well, I would just say how many cows are in the herd and how many lesions do we have? And I for sure think we need to break it down because um, for things like digital dermatitis and soul ulcers, two completely different diseases. So if we just group it together, um, you are going to make general recommendations. But if I know a farm has 10% digital dermatitis versus 1%, there's a whole different things. There are whole different recommendations veterinarians can make about this farm. So definitely they need to be breaking down by cause. Um, and 
if we go like um, there's many different lesions that people would like to record. The official ICAR list has 17 lesions on it, I think. But I think re realistically, we just need to record the five or six main lesions. And with that information, we can make a world of difference on most farms. The veterinarians can take a huge opportunity to monitor, talk to the hoof trimmer, have a relationship with them, and really bring value to their clients. Yeah, there's always opportunity, you know, for veterinarians to to get involved you know, with farms, I, I think sometimes we see only the work that potentially we could be losing as a veterinarian. And, and there's just, there's, there's so much there that, that we can continue to provide value to those farms. And as you talk about those different, you know, causes of lameness, I thought, you know, let's, let's talk about some of the, some of the big causes of lameness on farms. And let's start off with, uh, Harry here warts, um, and what what's the cause of that disease? We have both veterinarians, students, and producers that listen to our podcast. So what's the cause of the disease? Uh, and is it increasing in frequency uh, in the U.S.? Uh, so first off, I, I like to call it digital dermatitis. Um, mm -hmm. So Harry Hewart, there's many different names that people like to give it. I think as an industry, as we're trying to be professional, um, i tell my students that I prefer they call it digital dermatitis. Um, is it increasing in frequency? Hard to say. I think it's actually probably decreasing in frequency in some herds. Like we've worked on some herds recently where we, when we do studies, just collecting lesion information, we can get herds that have less than 2% or even 1% digital dermatitis type lesions over a year. Um, so I think as we have gotten better at foot bathing, and treatments. So I think the problem can decrease in certain herds. Having said all that, um, in some of the focus group work that we've been doing recently, it's the number one question people ask us about, especially farmers, our people that work, our personnel, a herds person, is what do I do about digital dermatitis? So it's still top of the mind for our clients. Um, and I think I argue it's probably the easiest disease, lameness-related disease to control because we know what we need to do. We know we need to foot bath appropriately. And if we have data, we can make informed decisions about how often that is. And that's truly the main prevention strategy we have is run a foot bath appropriately. And then treatments, we know what works. Tetracycline is probably the best option we have. And we know what we need to do as far as withdrawal and all the other information. So it's I think we have the information we need to truly make, I would argue, digital dermatitis a minor disease on most areas. Yeah. And do so um, when we look at those individual cows that have maybe severe digital dermatitis lesions, do those cows ever recover? Uh, does that, does that, the, does the, the cause of that uh, um, lesion ever go away out of their? different layers of their skin? <laughs> so probably not, right? So we should consider basically any le lameless lesion a lifelong sentence, okay. um, especially di digital dermatitis, but it's true for ulcers and probably even white line disease. But for digital dermatitis specifically, um, especially when you have ones with the really, like the ones that look like warts, those cows have it for life and we should change our expectation, right? Our expectation my expectation for treatment for digital dermatitis is to reduce the pain for the animal. That's my goal. I know I can't eliminate the disease with my treatment, 
I can keep it in check, but I can reduce the pain. And that's the goal for most of my treatments, to reduce pain as fast as possible. Um, but to get these animals recover and have it completely eliminated, that's not possible unless we're finding a very, very early. But if as soon as you're seeing those warts, there's so many um, changes that have happened at the level of the skin and these bacteria, um, they can insist and get in layers of skin that we can't expect our antibiotics to treat or even any other treatment to treat and get rid of. It's, you, t- you talked a little bit, uh, Gerard, about, about foot baths. What are some key take-home messages that producers and veterinarians should consider with foot baths? I had some producers uh, build some of the longer foot baths to make sure we get the appropriate number of dunks. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about foot bath design placement. Uh, what, what, what are some things that they could possibly put in the bath? Okay. The biggest factor in my mind is the length of the foot bath. And that's okay. just basically comes down to contact time. So the question we typically get is what should I put in my foot bath? And I typically flip it back around and like, how big is your foot bath? What's the length of your foot bath type thing? Cause if we can get basically at least two to three dunks. So that means it probably has to be 10 to 12 feet long or three to four meters long. That's, almost does as much as changing a product or putting a different product in. And it seems silly because really, if you look at it, if you watch video, you're increasing contact time, but maybe one to two seconds by making it longer. But the other thing that it does is just make sure that every single foot gets exposed to the foot bath solution. So that's probably the biggest thing you can do on a farm is change the length of the foot bath, which is easier said than done because some of these foot baths are put in concrete. Um, originally when the parlor was built or when the return alley was built. So there's some changes that need to happen. Um, but as farms get larger, we can use take advantage of transfer ways, transfer lanes, and use bypasses. So I think that's the key, making sure the footpath is the right length. And we can, depending on herds and how the flow out of the parlor is, we can make keep the footpath relatively narrow. So the volume of the actual footpath is still very similar to what we would typically use if we're using a six-foot footpath. Um but the goal should be to have it long. And then after that, I think we can talk about products and frequency. And the data would suggest for products that probably formalin and copper sulfate are the two main products that have some data behind them to support. And then the frequency to me is all based on data. So if I have a good herd, I can probably get them down to maybe two to three times a week. Um but if it's a herd that is out of control, then we probably should be foot bathing five to seven times a week. But I make those decisions based on the data I have coming out of the hoof trimming shoe. Great, great tips. And I personally, I, I love those longer foot baths. Definitely make a difference. And, you know, like Gerard said, uh, making them narrow and, and extending the length, you often don't ha- uh, increase your chemical cost, you know, a whole lot on that. But you definitely increase your effectiveness. Um and then what about, you know, those individual cow treatments? You touched on that a little bit, you know, tetracycline. Um, and, you know, what is the difference between wrapping a cow, not wrapping a cow, using a paste, um, painting it on? Uh, what, what's, the, what's the current research on that? Um, great question. And <laughs> depends on who you ask. But um, so I'm a big fan of not using a wrap because I think – um, with any of our treatments, if I can get away with it, um, because taking a wrap off 
is everybody's worst nightmare or it doesn't happen. Um, when I was trimming feet for a living, I couldn't trust my best client to take a wrap off. Some people would push me to put wraps on and I says, you get one chance. If I come back and most of my clients were on a three or six week rotation, um, if I come back at my next visit and I find a cow with a wrap on, you've lo- lost a privilege to tell me to put wraps on. And every <laughs> single client lost that privilege. Um, <laughs> the, even my best one. So I think the, so the data would suggest that there is very little evidence that there's a difference between putting a wrap on or not a wrap on. And the reason for that is if we think about even ourselves, if we have a cut on our finger or an injury on it, if we have a bandage on it, we get told to keep it clean and dry. Right? And as soon as it's saturated, we are told to change it. Well, we can't do that in a dairy farm, right? So unless we're in a hospital environment or a very well deep bedded stall that this wrap never gets saturated, it's going to get saturated and then becomes a haven for bacteria. So I'm a fan of just taking tetracycline um, and putting it on in a paste or paint format, um, use as little tetracycline as possible without using a wrap because Wraps aren't, not everybody's going to take every single wrap off. And if we leave one or two wraps on, that's probably setting the cow up for a longer duration of um, disease. Yeah, those are great conversations for the veterinarian to have with the hoof trimmer, with the producer. <clears throat> you know, I, I, when I was in practice, I butted heads with a lot of hoof trimmers on that. I actually had one producer that uh, uh, told the hoof trimmer he would pay him for every wrap he didn't put on the cow. Uh, and and that was, so instead of charging whatever, you know, facetious numbers, $3 to wrap a cow, he charged him a, he told the hoof trimmer to charge me a dollar for every cow you would have wrapped. And, uh, and that actually convinced the hoof trimmer not to do it anymore. Uh, but I think veterinarians can really be involved in those conversations and at a bare minimum, like Gerard says, monitor those cows that are wrapped to make sure that that wrap is getting removed. So, uh, great conversation on, on digital dermatitis and great great tips, Gerard. Um, let's talk now about sole ulcers, another cause of a significant cause of lameness on dairy farms, and maybe talk a little bit about the, the underlying, uh, um, you know, pathophysiology that goes along with, with sole ulcers and, and why those occur on farms. What are some reasons? Okay. Um, so sole ulcers are, <laughs> They're more complicated than we think they are. <laughs> and they're probably the biggest issue in the industry because they kind of create the reason we have, let's say, 15% or 20% lameness in the industry, I think is mainly due to because sole ulcer cows that just keep coming back on us. And the pathophysiology basically is um, if we think about P3 and the corium, so what happens is P3 sinks and puts pressure on the corium. What exactly causes that thinking is sinking is up for debate. But likely events that happen around the transition and standing time. So a combination of those two events cause sinking of P3 on the corium. And then there's a time component. And we don't know exactly what that time component is. Is it an hour? Is it two weeks of sinking of P3 um, on pr- that puts pressure on the corium? So what happens is you have pressure on the corium. P3 puts pressure on that corium. The corium's role sole job in life is basically to grow horn. Um, if it has pressure on it, then it can't do that job as well. And eventually it stops because it becomes a corrosed and that's creates a defect in the horn and eventually we end up with sole ulcers. So that's the lot, the short version of what happens. The exact details, 
We don't know exactly, but that's a recent hypothesis saying, okay, these are kind of events that are happening. Basically, standing time, pressure, um, and transition events, those kind of three kind of work together to cause soul ulcers. Okay. And you talked about standing time. So that's that's where facilities as well as management com- can come into uh, lameness prevention strategies on farms. True? Yes. And that's... If we're dealing with, I call it a hoof horn lesion problem, so including soil ulcers and white line, that's where we go to. That's our kind of go-to thing is working on facilities. What can we get, what can we do to make sure cows lay down for an appropriate time? And that's both facilities and management procedures that we need to address. Right. And, and that's, when I was in practice, one of the things I uh, did was I, uh, copied what, uh, you know, I've seen researchers do as far as time-lapse cameras. I purchased simple Bruno time-lapse cameras on, on uh, Amazon and, and hung them in dairy barns and then just showed producers how, how uh, their cows didn't lay down. Um, you know, I think a lot of times they see the cows laying down, but they don't know how long. And if you look at those time-lapse photos, videos, you can see how long cows are standing in barns. And when you do different facilities, it becomes pretty obvious uh, quickly uh, what type of facility uh, cows want to lay down in. But it's also um, maybe uh, as farms get bigger, it's also amount of time in the holding pen, distance walking. Does that play a role too? Yes, definitely time in holding pen. Distance walking probably affects more the thin sole problem that we're starting to see in some of these larger herds. But definitely time away from pen is a big impact. And I love like – if you want to learn something about cow behavior and what's happening on a dairy, just put some cameras up because it's yeah. amazing what you can learn. It's There's so many things you can learn just by putting those cameras up. Anytime I've seen videos that like, wow, I didn't know cows did that. And it's yeah. like I've been in cows basically all my life, right? So it's just amazing what you can learn when you do those type of things. Yeah. Yeah. And what about routine hoof trimming? I know that's something that you're passionate about, the appropriate way to trim uh, feet and, and, and how often that is done. Does that play a role in, in uh, the development of sole ulcers as we talk about P3 sinking? <clears throat> so, <laughs> yes, it does. Um, but exactly how it does or what mechanism and how frequently probably is unclear. Um, and as herds get larger, it's probably changing on the impact of trimming. But routine hoof trimming, basically what it's trying to do is making sure that we take rush, the pressure off the sole ulcer spot. So basically we're talking about the location right underneath the flexor tuberosity. And we can do things trimming-wise to take pressure off that. And that probably buys us an extra month to two months where there's no counter pressure. Because if you imagine P3 sinking... Um, there would be no counter pressure if you have a basically um, a shallow dish underneath the f- flexor tuberosity. There would be no compression happening in that location. So that's one of the key aspects of a routine trimming. So that's, I think, important. Having said all that, the data to support the use of routine trimming as a preventative strategy is so-so. But what I think is more important is that hoof trimmers are in farms on a routine basis. So that's why it looks like routine trimming works because I think it makes hoof trimmers on farms more frequently. And we start addressing lame cows and chronic cows. And maybe we get a preventative aspect of it, which 
depending on the herd and the environment the cows are in, is bigger in some herds and not as big as in other herds. But the key to me factor is the routine presence of a hoof trimmer on a dairy probably has a bigger impact in some herds than the routine trimming does, which is probably a different idea, um, but definitely, I think, important to consider as herds get bigger. Yeah, and I think that makes sense because I think our industry veterinarians would advocate that, you know, having a veterinarian present on farm is an important part of, you know, just general disease management on farms. You know, there's some things we can do with records evaluations and some things we need to uh, be physically present. So that was a, that's a very good, uh, good point about producers, you know, utilizing the services of their, of their hoof trimmer. So, Treatment for sole ulcers and, and the sequela of sole ulcers, what, what are some things we can do? You know, you had mentioned earlier that one of the main roles in treating individual cows with a lameness disease is alleviation of pain. Um, so how can we do that when we're talking about sole ulcers? So for sole ulcers, the biggest thing we can do is um, properly treat the lesion, so removing all the loose horn. And then the biggest thing we can do to improve the cow's welfare is probably put a block on it. So by putting a block on the opposite hoof, and what we do is remove the pressure from that lesion. So now when P3 stinks as the cow walks, there's no counter pressure. We take the tension off the wound and this lesion can heal as fast as possible. And that's kind of the goal with sole ulcers, especially ones that happen for the first time um, on a cow is that they heal as fast as possible. Because what we're learning as we're studying this disease more, that inflammation has a huge role to play. And as we get um, a longer time that the corium has um, inflammatory process happening, P3 actually starts to grow more bone. And then we get a P3 that's larger, has bony protrusions. Some of them actually has wings. And that results in more pressure on the corium, a kind of a chronic cycle, because now we have a lesion or a cow with... Um, bony protrusions on P3, putting more pressure on the corium. And this is one of the reasons these cows with ulcers kind of keep coming back on us, lactation over lactation. Um, so if we have, if I know this is the cow's first lameness event or sole ulcer event, I would put a block on her, treat the lesion, which I would do for any cow with sole ulcers. But if it's a cow's first lameness event, I'd really love to be able to give her some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories because there's some data out of the UK um, to show that that actually improves outcomes and needs further study. And of course, in the US, we don't have the same options as far as non-steroidals. Um, but that for our first occurrence of a ulcer, I think we can make a huge difference by providing some inflammatory relief and also some pain relief to these animals. And when you say those, uh, and that's a, you know, a great tip there, uh, as far as providing both, you know, our, our local treatment as well as, you know, pharmacological treatment for these, these cows that are, that are really suffering. Um, is there, is there, um, what about, you know, when you say that the actual P3 has bony changes and these cows can, you know, recurrently become lame, you know, if they're sound, you know, is that, is that kind of a, of a strike for calling in some herds, you know, as we look and we see these cows, you know, be repeatedly lame, obviously we don't want to call lame cows. We want to return them to soundness and then calling, but is that, is that a, a mechanism that some herds should be utilizing? <laughs> so that's 
I guess another passion of mine is using records to make decisions about lame cows, right? So I agree. I like to, um, when I set up recording systems, I like to have a report that shows me how many cows have been lame greater than three or four times in a lactation, for example. And typically those are cows with hoof horn lesions, so ulcers and tinsel or toe problems. Trying to get at your question, trying to say, okay, do these cows either need further intervention or do they need culling? Or do we need to make euthanasia decisions about these cows? Yes. Um, and I think that's a huge opportunity for veterinarians to get involved. Because even as farms get bigger, um, and I've dealt with this at a very large dairy where the trimmer leaves a report, the data gets entered. But sometimes they're unaware of problems happening because the trimmer is seeing so many cows and he's like, yeah, I'm treating a few more cows. But if we start looking at their records, we might be having an outbreak or there might be cows that are just being seen repeatedly and there's nobody having that check to say, okay, what's, why is this cow been in the shoot 23 times this lactation? Like, what should we do with her? Right. And that's, I think, a huge opportunity for veterinarians is A, we can make decisions about this cow. And, but B, we can also probably do things that a hoof trimmer can't do that can really help these cows and avoid culling. Right. So I think I'm of the opinion that lameness shouldn't be the reason the cow leaves the dairy because I think most lameness cases, we can do things as a veterinarian to get it to heal. Is she going to be walking perfectly? No, because the bony changes happen. There's always going to be some changes in her gait. Um, but we can heal the lesion. We can keep this cow comfortable um, and make decisions at that point and say, okay, is this a cow we want to keep or not want to keep? Because I also don't want to ship a lame, a severely lame cow, right? And that's, I think, so if we're talking a three versus a two, we can get most lame cows back to a one or a two score, like a mild two if we're talking cows. And those cows are okay to call, but a three, we shouldn't be putting on a track. And so I think as veterinarians, we can help make those decisions saying, okay, what can we do for this cow? Is it ethical to do these things for a cow? Just because we can doesn't mean we should do these things to a cow. But I think as a veterinarian, there's a huge opportunity to start and it's a good opportunity to start and show your values by starting with these chronic cows and, okay, what can we do? Do we need to do something? Should we do something? And just go from there. That's, I think that's an opportunity to get in the door for a lot of veterinarians. Absolutely. And I, and I think, and I would challenge our, our listeners to, to do that. When you listen to this podcast, go to your farms and look at those cows that are, you know, lame, you know, three plus times. And, and, you know, that's, it's it's routine on dairies, I think, that they do that type of thing for chronic mastitis cows, right? I mean, this cow's been treated, you know, three, four times for mastitis. They just don't, you know, they that is a common report, you know, for, for veterinarians and producers to run. So, um, you know, really good suggestion there to to do the same thing for the feet as we're doing for the udder. And I think we can make a big impact on, on cow welfare. Um, and that's... Let's, that's ex- Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Jared. What you just said is my whole motto. I think we need to address lameness, like monitor lameness, think about lameness, just like we do mastitis. Just put the teats on the feet and treat yes. them exactly the same. Run the same reports, ask for the same data because new infection rate, cure rate, all those things. We need. I should be able to walk on a dairy and say, okay, what's your new infection rate for ulcers? And I should be able to get a report that says these are the cows that have never had ulcers. And that number is probably less than 1%. If I look at total ulcers, it might be 10%. But we can get herds, and I've seen herds, that that new infection rate of ulcers 
is really, really low, but it's the chronics that are the issue, right? So that's, we need to think of lameness like we do mastitis. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk uh, uh, one more here, foot rot. Um, you know, maybe not, uh, uh, the incidence rate is probably not as, as common on a, on a lot of facilities, but those cows can have, you know, severe pain and they can also have some pretty, you know, chronic uh, complications of that with septic arthritis uh, with other diseases as well, but, but what are some conditions that might predispose cows, uh, to foot rot and, and maybe talk a little bit about the, the pathophysiology of that, uh, lameness illness. So to me, foot rot is always something that happens. It should happen in dairies as an epidemic, not that it should happen, but if it's going to happen, it's going to happen as an epidemic. Typically, like we might get the odd foot rot case, and typically, foot rot cases happen because there's been some damage to the interdigital space, basically. So there's been a cut or some um, complication. For example, if they have digital dermatitis, now there's an opening that the foot rot bacteria can get into the foot um, and cause problems. But typically, if there's problems with foot rot in a dairy, it's because there's some sort of trauma that's happening. So the most recent one that I can think of is... Um, People were disposing of twist ties used in the parlor to keep hoses together, and they were ending up in the recycling system, in the sand bedding recycling system. And then they were cutting, putting small cuts in between the interdigital space, and we were having outbreaks of fort pot in close-up dairy cows. Or basically fresh cows because they were happening in the close-up pen because they weren't going through a foot bath. So that's, in my experience, if we have too much foot rot, it's because there's some underlying something that's causing trauma to the interdigital space and putting cuts on it. Um, So if there's dairies that have a lot of foot rot, you have to look for things that are causing like cut, basically cutting the cows interdigital space and allowing bacteria to come in because the fusobacterium is everywhere as we all know. So there has to be some sort of entry point to cause problems on dairies. And, and you talked about foot baths. Is, is the same foot baths are going to help producers uh, prevent both digital dermatitis as well as foot rot? Yes. Um, to me, the products are the same. The foot bath strategies are exactly the same. And the example I was giving where we were having an outbreak of foot rot and foot, and foot rot and fresh cows, you could basically track it. It was in the first week or so of um, Days of Milk. And then after that, because the dairy was foot bathing on a regular basis to lactating cows, the problem petered out, even though the twist ties were still present in the lactating pens because of the foot bath, we were able to control it. So foot baths are a key preventative strategy for for us. And then treatment options, individual cow treatment options for, for foot rot. Does that always require systemic pharmacologic intervention? Yes. In my mind, it does. Um, I had one colleague that used to claim in very early cases, we can use copper sulfate with a bandage, but I'm a big believer that I, we need to treat these cows with um, systemic antibiotics. And that's pro- that's the key thing I tell hoof trimmers and farms is that that's really the only disease where systemic antibiotics are going to do anything. If you give a cow systemic antibiotics, she should get be- a lame cow systemic antibiotics if it's foot rot, she's going to get better in a couple of days. And if she doesn't, then we need to reassess her diagnosis. So systemic antibiotics to me are a key component 
of treating foot rot. Probably the only true um, treatment option we have. Is there any, you know, you, you talked about some of the research from the UK on NSAIDs for, for uh, uh, sole ulcers. Is there any uh, evidence out there for, for use of non-steroidals for, for foot rot for the pain or inflammation associated with that disease? Yeah, there is. There's some, um, there's a product, so um, intradermal aflinixin um, is one product that has approval and some data behind it for non-lactating and beef animals. So that is an option that exists to reduce the pain and reduce this, improve the welfare of the animals. Unfortunately, it's not labeled for use in lactating dairy cows, um, but that is an option that exists. Yeah, and that's our first approval in the U.S. for uh, pain. Uh, and as Gerard said, that's for the pain associated with foot rot in, in beef cattle. But, uh, you know, I challenge veterinarians to always consider the pain component of any lameness disease and see where you can advocate for for the cow, um, for that individual cow, uh, as you help producers uh, make their uh, treatment protocol. So great discussion, Gerard, on uh, on a few of the of the causes of lameness. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your research. So I'm, I'm also passionate about our AABP Foundation, and uh, you were one of our recipients. The foundation typically uh, provides a grant of up to $25,000 for a beef-related project and a dairy-related project, and your project proposal was uh, titled Development of a Sole Ulcer Induction Model in Holstein Cows. The next step in lameness research, and that was funded by the foundation. Can you talk a little bit about this project, and 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 uh, maybe a little bit about uh, uh, what this research is going to entail? Perfect. Yes, I'd love to. Um, I ABP supported actually two of my research projects, and I would argue without it, um, my research program wouldn't be where it is. So I'm a great. Um, supporter of it, and I love the work it's doing and appreciate the support. Um, the project itself, the development of a soil induction model, um, basically stems from a, a crazy harebrained idea I had, I don't know, probably, was it, so 2007, 2008, so a long time ago, um, thinking that I can get, the idea I had is that I can I can give soil ulcers to dairy cows, to dry, to dry cows, was the idea I had. Um, the reason I believe that, because I'm not a big believer that um, ruminal acidosis has a big role to play in causing soil ulcers. Um, so I had this idea 13 years ago. Um, I've been doing work since then to kind of back some of this up. As other researchers have done more work, it's become clear that, yes, the transition period is a huge factor to play. And the idea behind the project is to really make a difference in treatment for dairy cows and to study that appropriately, I need to know when the cows become lame and I need to know our history. So when I go out and do a field study and looking for soil ulcer cases, I need to remove all the chronic cows from my population of interest. And then I'm dealing with a disease that maybe has one to 2% incidence. So that's a very, I need to look at a large number of cows. Whereas if I can induce the disease in a group of animals, I can now evaluate NSAIDs, I can evaluate blocks, I can evaluate rechecks, all those type of things. So the whole premise behind the idea, behind the project, is that if I can induce lameness, induce soul ulcers in these cows, 
Now I have a model where I can study how to most appropriately treat it and improve the outcome and the welfare of these cows. Yeah, and Gerard also was, he he had mentioned that this is the second project that he has uh, had funded through the foundation. The other project that he had funded through the foundation was in 2014, and that was a collaboration with the Hoof Trimmers Association and the AABP Foundation. So, you know, the foundation um, really, uh, one of their um, uh, mission is to uh, fund practical clinical research that may not be funded uh, through other means. So, you know, I would encourage our members uh, to donate to the foundation. Uh, the, the, the research that's generated through these projects is just, you know, boots on the ground, practical, uh, and really important for both our beef and dairy uh, members. And so you could do that by going to the foundation site and clicking on the donate menu. You know, we have 5,000 members five bucks a year funds the project. So, you know, I'd really encourage our members and we'll put a link to that in our, in our podcast notes. And then we also have, if you go to the research menu, you can look at the projects that have been funded, the ones that have been completed and submitted for publication. We have links to the publication. We have links to the, the research presentations at the conference. So there's lots of information there for our uh, members and the public to, uh, to not only support, but also get the information back, which is the goal of the foundation is to fund the research, but then get that information into the, into the hands of our members. So I'm looking forward uh, to, to the uh, results of your project, Gerard. That's, that's fantastic. So the other thing that Gerard is, go ahead, Gerard. I was saying, just so members know, most of us. So for example, the hoof trimming project that got funded as researchers, we try to leverage that seed funding from ABP with other funding. So because I got funded by ABP, I was able to get another uh, funding from another agency to make the project bigger and get more value to back to ABP basically. So basically a $25,000 investment for the trimming project resulted in a $200,000 project because I was able to get funding from another agency to supplement it. And then we can do better research. And I've tried to do the same thing with the recently foundation funding, right? It's a stepping stone to get um, more research funding and to truly answer questions that veterinarians, hoof trimmers, the industry can really use. So the foundation funding is crucial, especially for areas like lameness where there's not a lot of other funding opportunities from pharmaceutical companies, et cetera. Yes. And we're very glad that we can serve, that our organization can serve as a, you know, a, a seed for additional funding. So, uh, so important. Um, and then you also, Gerard, have been involved for a long time on our lameness committee and developing resources. Uh, the lameness committee, and we'll put uh, a link in the podcast notes to some of the documents. If you go to the lameness committee page, um, they have developed a lot of fact sheets, and these are really nice. They're formatted nicely that you can print them um, and, and utilize them for producers. But, um, Gerard, maybe talk a little bit about the importance of those resources for our members and, and how they might use those. Uh, you know, we just recently did the one on soul ulcers was just recently updated as well. Yeah, so those fact sheets, um, I actually use them in my teaching. So I refer students to them. Um, they're basically, a lot of them are like short summaries about individual lesions. So there's someone digital dermatitis and soul ulcers, like Fred said, that's just been redone, kind of updates them. So the committee reviews them on a semi-regular basis. 
to see if they need updating. Um, but I think they're a great resource to kind of refresh and get an update on the current knowledge. Um, they might also be useful for actually to hand out to clients that are visual and like to read information in a short digestible format. So I think they're a great resource for veterinarians to be aware of and to use um, to for CE, but also some further control or further opportunities to communicate with their clients. So I encourage our members to use them and to look at them and say, okay, what can I use? And they're both dairy and beef focused. Um, so we recently also put out an overview of lameness in beef and dairy herds that kind of goes over the big factors. Um, but we have beef members on our committee too, to make sure we get both perspectives on these fact sheets. Yeah. And those are really great resources, great pictures on there too. Um, so I would encourage our members to look at those and, and utilize them. So I really enjoyed doing this podcast with you, Gerard. I appreciate your time. You know, I want to remind our members that above anything else, you know, lameness, as Gerard said, is an animal welfare issue. And there's a big opportunity for veterinarians to get involved, work with your hoof trimmer, work with your producers to find out the incidence of lameness, the causes of lameness, treat it like any other disease, as Gerard said, uh, put the teats on the feet and look at uh, your uh, recurrent lameness, your chronic lameness, your 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 new infections or your new incidents uh, of of disease on the farm. Uh, I think another great tip that he talked about was monitor foot wraps, make sure they're being used appropriately, or alternatively, investigate methods on your farms where wraps may not be needed. And then another great tip is we get asked all the time as veterinarians, what chemical should I put in my foot bath? The follow-up question is, how long is your foot bath? So I think we got some really great tips from Gerard here today to talk about lameness. Look at those links about the AABP Foundation and the research projects that are being funded. Gerard, thank you so much for participating today, and we look forward to your research. Thank you, Fred. It's been a pleasure. It was fun. <laughs>